when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the House of Representatives voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with a bucket of garbage placing the lives of some 24 million people at risk, maybe even more. It's quite a spectacle, really. We'll have 15 minutes of flabbergasted gasping for you to enjoy. Meanwhile, for some reason, we'll also talk about other things. For example, just how populist is the Trump White House going to get? The new head of the SEC will be Goldman Sachs bailout lawyer, Jay Clayton. So it's sure not looking good for that whole drain the swamp project. But hey, maybe we're wrong. Joining us to figure this out is our pal Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Finally, Donald Trump is hoping to appoint Tennessee State Senator Mark Green to the position of Secretary of the Army. This is actually his second attempt to place someone in that job. And based upon Green's litany of bizarre statements and strange positions, there is a not insignificant chance that he's going to need a third. With that in mind... Why did Trump pick this guy? We'll try to figure that out as well. I'm Jason Lincolns with HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Amanda Turkle, and Jeff Young. And here's what happened first. Hello, hello, America and the world. Welcome back to another edition of so that happened. We've got some hot shots on the misanthropocene today to talk about, and we're not going to bury the lead, man. The House of Representatives has voted to scuttle the Affordable Care Act uh, and maybe kill a lot of people. We don't know for sure. Uh, we're going to try to get closer to knowing something about what's going to happen now and then next. Uh, joining me in the studio in D.C., we have Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. And uh, we have the calming presence of Jeff Young, senior healthcare reporter in New York City. Hello, Jason. Way to go, Jeff. You sound very calm and measured. Yeah. So, Jeff, um, what happened? Well, I, I feel like I have to first eat a little bit of crow because I've been consistently saying for months that I never actually thought they'd pull this off. And they just did. So I was wrong. By uh, one vote. Uh, yes. Right. But still. Right. I, I was like, they're never going to figure this out. Um, of course, a big reason why they were able to get to yes on this is by moving it so fast that the members of Congress who voted for it don't actually know, you know what's in it or what it does. Uh, nor really does anybody else apart from a big picture level because they did this without getting the Congressional Budget Office to tell them uh, what its effects would be. And if you remember – one of the big reasons why they had to give up on this about six weeks ago is that the CBO came out with a score that said that like 24 million people were going to lose their health insurance and all this other bad stuff and it freaked everybody out. So it's kind of funny that six weeks later, it's 
basically the same bill. So it would do about the same thing. Uh, now suddenly they're okay with it just because they, there's, there's no one telling them how bad it is? Well, just to, quite a, just to talk about some of the things that are bad about this, um, uh, eye-popping premium surcharges um, for – People with some selected health conditions, the estimate for 40-year-old individuals with uh, a completed pregnancy with no or minor, minor complications, 17 grand. Asthma, 4 grand. It gets really crazy when you start talking about severe cancers like lung cancer. We're talking about estimated surcharge increases of 71,000, up to 140,000 for metastatic cancer. On top of all that, there's provisions in this bill that apparently would gut a lot of the protections that people who enjoy employer-provided health care receive. I'm guessing no one really saw that coming. Uh, It just seems like a really poisonous pill to swallow. And when I think back to the hell that President Barack Obama went through when a small number of people lost their health insurance, which stuck him out on an island where he had said, if you like your plan, you can keep it. Uh, that was a real ordeal for him. Now we've increased the possible um, population of people who could lose their health insurance by several orders of magnitude. Jeff, is this like a suicide mission? It's so crazy because like, it, it boggles my mind the extent to which – you know, and this has not just been the last few days as they got near the, the vote – um, but just you know, all year, the extent to which uh, Republican leaders and a lot of the rank and file people, although the leaders I think know that they're full of crap, and the rank and file people may just be repeating what they've heard, but they, they make claims about this bill that are so breathtakingly at odds with what it actually would do. Right. So there's a difference between normal politics. If you have a bill or whatever. Uh, you're going to play up what's good about it and downplay what's bad about it, right? So you look back at the Affordable Care Act. Obama said, no, one, you, you're not going to lose your coverage. And then some people's plans got canceled and they all freaked out. It was a tiny sliver of the population, but he said it wouldn't happen, right? So he was 98% correct or whatever, all right? Still a lie, but, you know, <laughs> fairly close in the end to the truth and, uh, you know, and exaggerating some of the benefits too. Not everyone has insurance, right? But here, they have a bill that not by accident but by design takes like $900 billion out of Medicaid, like a quarter of the Medicaid budget, right? And Medicaid is already a very bare-bones program. There's not a lot of fat to cut there, right? So if you take the money out of it, what are you going to do? You're going to cover fewer people and those who are covered are going to get less benefits, right? But then House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy goes on TV today and says no one's going to lose their Medicaid. It's absurd. Of course they are. That's actually the point of the bill. The and, part of this bill to, is just a huge finance, cut. And to, and to finance tax cuts yeah. for high-income people with the lack of coverage. Yeah. I mean setting aside for a second like these sort of health policy aspects of this bill, like it's an almost dollar for dollar. Like that's not an exaggeration. Uh a comparison between the Medicaid cuts and the cuts in the tax credits for private insurance and the value of the tax cuts that rich people and healthcare companies are going to get. Like it's almost the exact same number. So <laughs> it's what a that. coincidence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, Zach, like, as you know, like a big part of the reason why they're doing this right now, why they're doing it in such a hurry is that they want to use the budget reconciliation process for the health care bill so the Democrats can't filibuster it and Republicans can pass it in the Senate with a simple majority. And because they have to do this first in order to set up the budget so that they can pass an even more ginormous tax cut that never expires later in the year. 
Yes, the the idea is that the 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 tax cut legislation that's coming down the pike would it would be easier to make it quote revenue neutral unquote if you get some some tax cuts in uh, on the on the healthcare side so you can do a bigger tax cut for rich people even later. Um, now, Jeff, it, it seemed like this bill was dead until this week when there was some sort of deal cut with uh, Congressman Fred Upton involving high risk pool funding. What are high risk pools and what what does this yeah. what does this change accomplish? Well, the concept of a high risk pool is an old one. They've been around uh, they had been around since the 70s until the Affordable Care Act made them unnecessary. But the basic idea and in theory it could work, right? You take anybody who's really sick, you know, you've ever had cancer, or you currently have cancer or you were born with a, you know, birth defect or you have multiple sclerosis or what have you. If, right now, the way it works is if you have a, a, an ailment like that that makes you expensive to take care of, um, everybody who buys the same insurance as you is shipping in for your medical care. So that has the effect of making the insurance more expensive for people who aren't using it as much. This is true whether you get your insurance from your employer or whether you buy it directly, right? Um, right. So, so the idea is you take them out of there, out of the regular insurance pool, and then the people in the regular insurance pool don't have to pay for their expenses and it makes their insurance cheaper, which, hey, great for them. The second part of it is that you spend government money to subsidize or provide the medical care that people in these high-risk pools need, right? Because at the end of this, it's money. Someone goes to the doctor or goes to the hospital to cost money, who's going to pay for it? This is just taking it, sort of shifting that burden onto the government and away from uh, people in the insurance market. The problem has always been with these high-risk pools, which most states had. They never put enough money in there to make it actually work. So you've got – they can only cover a small, tiny, tiny fraction of the number of people in a given state that might need it. The premiums could be through the roof. There could be a six-month waiting list, all these things. Um, so – it could work. And as I always say, there is an example in this country of a really well-functioning high-risk pool. It's called Medicare. <laughs> you put old and disabled people into a special pool that taxpayers finance and it's financed well and then they can get the care they need. Voila. So instead of that, the uh, what these so-called moderates in the House got was an extra $8 billion dollars supposedly to be distributed to states that allow insurance companies to start rejecting you based on your pre-existing conditions or you know charging you extra because of them which they're not and allowed that's to do short of, care. that's far short of the mark as well, far as proper funding for yeah. high risk pools and, well, and, and i th- and i think your point there about medicare is important um jeff because look if if the issue here is that relatively healthy people don't want to see their premiums go up because they don't want to pay for other people's health care that only works if you if you underfund the high risk pool because right. otherwise they're they're chipping in through their tax dollars. Yeah, yeah. the government uh, doesn't fund it; taxpayers do. Yeah, by the by, just 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 to drive the point home, eight billion dollars sounds like a lot of money if you don't pay attention to the federal government, right? First of all, you know we spend trillions of dollars in this country on healthcare every year, and the vast vast majority of that is for the very sick people. Right. Like here's a funny example. There's some there's one person in Iowa whose medical expenses are so costly that it screwed up the entire state's health insurance market. One person. Right. That can happen. That's an extreme case. But like, you know, that's sort of that, 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 that that's how this can go. Right. If you were to really fund a high risk pool to have a kind of a Medicare for sick people. Right. So if you ever get diagnosed with cancer, you drop your insurance, your, your company insurance plan or your Obamacare plan, and then you get put into this program. I have seen estimates from the conservative, meaning politically conservative side, 
to you know the kind of liberal side uh, of what it would really cost to do that, and it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year, yeah. right? Um, and again, like it's not about saving money; it's about who is paying it, right? Right. So, like in the Obamacare markets right now, where they have to take everybody, no questions asked, and everyone pays the same rate regardless of their you know health status. Um, Sick people are paid for through a combination of their fellow customers' premium payments and taxpayer money uh, if the sick person qualifies for financial assistance under the law, right? That's it. So this would be sort of having the whole government pay for it. But the reality is that with this bill the House passed today, those costs would just fall mostly or entirely on the sick person. Right. Because if insurance company insurance companies don't make money paying claims, Right, you know, you they know, make I, money not paying claims. So, but, this, the, the, but the whole thing here, the idea that there was this magic solution that just fell into the bill at the last minute, is either dishonest because it won't actually cover people, or it's dishonest because it won't actually lower premiums for people. It, the whole thing is is a smoke and mirror scam that gave people an excuse to vote for the bill. That's you know, right. We haven't even. We That's haven't right. Even no, I was just going to say, like, I I, I, and I wrote this uh, this week, like. It enables members of Congress who either don't understand this stuff or don't care that what they're saying is bogus to say, oh, you heard last week on TV that this bill didn't protect people with preexisting conditions. I got something that does. And frankly, I think to a lot of people who aren't personally affected by this, that's all they want to hear. Oh, all right. Well, you took care of that. Now I can stop. Now I can go back to you know posting frog memes to Twitter. Well, that's the first time we brought up pre-existing conditions. Um, I'm wondering, just do, do the people who pass this bill imagine that all these people who stand to lose insurance are somehow not going to notice it? Yeah. Well, this is what I was saying about McCarthy and the Medicaid thing. And like, you know, since the beginning of the year, like Health and Human Service Secretary Tom Price, a lot of members of Congress, and of course, Trump himself keeps saying, no one's going to lose coverage. No one's going to lose coverage. Ah. Well, of course they are. You, it, you can't take all this money that's currently going to help people who can't afford health care get health care and then, and then also change the rules so that if you've ever been sick before in your life, uh, an insurance company can say, no, I don't want to do business with you. And then dot, 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 everyone's covered. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. And it blows well, me away. Well, what about freedom and liberty? That, what about freedom and liberty, Jeff? You know, they're barely, actually, it's, it's funny. They're not, they're not actually talking about that that much this week. That's true. Um, I, I wonder what if, what do you think about um, something uh, Mo, Representative Mo Brooks said last week. I want to give him credit for being maybe the only honest man up there. He uh, he basically said that people who make good moral choices in their lives are the people who deserve health insurance, and the people who don't have health insurance need to consider the uh, the moral choices they've made. I think that's a Pretty solid explication of the Republican approach to health care. I think that very few of them are willing to say it out loud. Certainly, Paul Ryan has made a career of convoluting his message to avoid saying what he really, truly means. And it's always in the background. It's been clear to me that's what he means. But, Jeff, what do you think about that? Well, you know, it's funny, actually. Uh, Ryan actually said almost the exact same thing about a year and a half ago. I wrote about it at the time. Uh, it was almost worded the same way. I take care of myself. I exercise. You know, why should I have to pay for, you know, somebody who doesn't do that? Um, what, what, what's been kind of fascinating to me is that over the last, you know, seven years, 
I, I feel like it, there's, it, it's been revealed that there is a line of conservative thinking that it's two parts. First, as you were saying, that like illness is somehow a moral failing. And I know people are thinking about like, oh, that guy eats McDonald's every day and he smokes cigarettes and it's his fault that you know he's got the gout or whatever. OK. I mean that's true as far as it goes I guess. But the other half of it and like I don't know whether this idea predated the Affordable Care Act or if the Affordable Care Act debate just sort of brought people to this point of saying things like this out loud. But you've now got – Ideas like this also openly question the mere concept of insurance. Why should I pay for your medical care? Well, because when you get hit by a car, I'm going to pay for yours. That's how this works. Right. Otherwise, it's not a savings plan where you're like putting away money right. that you get back later when you get sick. It, yeah. you're, you're spreading risk out among multiple people with different risk profiles. Yeah. And that's true of all kinds of insurance. You know, like if, if your house burns down, the person down the block from you who has the same fire insurance isn't allowed to just say, no, I'm not paying for that. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, you know, and, and it does sort of get wended in with this weird moral argument. And, you know, Jason, I know this is something that, that you and I have talked about before, too, this sort of idea that if you can't afford the health insurance or the medical care you need, that's because you don't deserve it. Right. You know, like that, that I think undergirds a lot of this, too. Um, you know, so it's it seems as though it seems as though this whole ridiculous political debate has now opened up this idea of I mean, I've seen like like random conservatives on Twitter yelling that uh, health insurance is socialism. Well, I mean, I suppose so. Right. Yeah, Everyone pays into a pot that you draw down from when you need it. But it's also one of the oldest financial instruments like in the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We say that all the time on the show. There are basically two types of financial products. There is lending money and interest and there's insurance against risk. Yeah. I mean, that's that. <laughs> banks go to a lot of trouble, including that what they're doing is just one of those two things. You know, and, and within this philosophical, philosophical debate, too, you run into the issue of the, uh, the individual mandate. Right. And a lot of people just don't really like the idea of the government saying, well, you have to by health insurance, right? And I, right. I actually, I, I totally get that. It's, it sort of feels weird even saying it out loud. Um, but of course, if that person who wants the liberty to not buy health insurance because they don't think they want it, they'd rather spend the money on something else or whatever, gets hit by a bus, I have to pay their ER bill. Right. So, you know, who's the, who's the sponge? And, you, <laughs> and you're a decent enough person that even if that person did screw you by not paying into the pool, you are not going to look that person in the eye and say, well, you didn't pay, buddy. I'm not, I, I think you yeah. should just die. <laughs> Tough luck. So, so, Jeff, obviously this now moves to the Senate. I know that I know that the White House today, uh, Thursday in the Rose Garden, Donald Trump and the House GOP leadership and, and rank and file whooped it up and celebrated uh, the putting 24 million people at risk. They're so excited. They're so happy. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 popping brews and whatnot. But um, uh, it goes to the Senate now. And one of the more popular things I've seen on Twitter and out there in, in pundit land is this sort of like notion that, oh, well, the Senate's going to kill this. The Senate's going to kill this. Um, and, um, you know, I just remember that the guy who's running the Senate is this dude named Mitch McConnell. He's a wily little, wily little man. He's wily. He's, he's got tricks. So what do you think about that? Do you think that this dies in the Senate and we all move on, go home? Or do you think that something happens from here that, uh, that brings this junk 
fully formed to the lives of the American people? Well, this is, I'm afraid, going to be a lame answer, but I, I feel like it's too early to know. Like that's pretty it, lame. No, I mean, th- think think about the that's think about really the po- lame. think about the politics of this, right? Like this bill and the things it does, and we know this from the first version of it, pulls very very badly. People don't like weakening protection for pre-existing conditions. They don't like the idea of kicking all these people off of Medicaid. It makes them feel bad, right? Mitch McConnell knows that, right? On the other hand, you know, this has been a thing they've been trying to do for a long time, and the House pulled it off, so he's going to be under a lot of pressure to do the same. Although I have to wonder how much how much Mitch McConnell lets himself sort of give a crap what Donald Trump thinks to the extent that Paul Ryan did throughout this whole process. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not at all. Uh, you know, McConnell doesn't uh, isn't known for for playing second fiddle to anybody. Um, you know, but but see, at the same time, right? We talk about the the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, which a lot of states have done, including states that are run by Republicans, including a state like Arkansas. Right? You've got Tom Cotton, who in every other way is like a real conservative guy in the Senate, who's walking around saying, "Whoa, whoa." Don't touch our Medicaid expansion. Well, that's half of Obamacare. Right. So if you've got him and Rob Portman from Ohio and uh, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and there's some others uh, rattling off right now who have who are outspoken about wanting to protect their state's Medicaid expansion, I don't see how you pass anything that looks even remotely like the House bill in the Senate. Now, those people could all cave. We just saw these so-called moderates in the House cave pretty convincingly uh, on, on the vote Thursday. So, you know, you never know. But uh, well, they may have came because they think the Senate's going to put this to bed or a dirt nap. Or you know, this is this is something else too, right? It could be that one of the reasons that these House Republicans are so happy isn't just they love it when poor people aren't allowed to go to the doctor, but also because this is now the Senate's problem. They, and you know, some of those House members who voted for this bill might even be counting on it dying in the Senate, so they can blame the Senate for it and still tell their you know their core constituents, "Hey, I voted to repeal and replace Obamacare like I said I would." Sorry about that, stinky Senate. I feel like it's always risky to, to, to say never in, in politics, particularly given that Donald Trump is president of the United States. But th- I think you're right. There are, there are at least, I think, five Republicans who would, who would need to completely cave on, on public statements about this bill uh, on major, major basic principles about the bill, like cutting nearly a trillion dollars from Medicaid in, or, in order for this thing to get through the Senate. And if, if they – don't do that. Then they have to fundamentally restructure the bill and then throw it back to the House to have the House do something with it. And we just saw what a nightmare it was to get this thing through the House. So it faces a very difficult political road ahead. That's not to say that nothing that it, that it couldn't pass full stop period forever. But it's really, really going to be tough. And if they do get it through, it's going to be really politically toxic for everybody who votes for it, which you know will change the way that people think about healthcare politics over the next you know four or five years. I would like to yes and your comments. With something else, um, and uh, I'm going to dust off the word Democrat, which I don't get to use very often these days when talking about policymaking. Um, but you know, I mean, so the House moved the the thing they moved under the filibuster-proof budget reconciliation rules, right, so that they can get through the Senate with just 51 votes. In addition to the fact that you know maybe there's not even 51 votes, as Zach was just saying. This is only the first part of this. There's a bunch of stuff that they want to do to the healthcare system, including some things that they sort of have to do if the thing they passed in the House is even supposed to work the way that they designed it, that's going to require 60 votes because Democrats will filibuster it, 
well, where are these eight, nine Democrats who are going to vote for anything that has to do with dismantling the oh, Affordable Care Act? If they voted against the ACA at this point, they would be ground into a fine paste by their right. constituents. And they would all, not get out the door alive. Trump seems to have this idea that like he can like scare them into playing along, right? Um, but like I feel like anti-ACA sentiment is baked into the cake already for Democrats. You know, like what else can you do to make it worse? If people hate the Obamacare and you're a Democrat, well, they already don't like you for that. So right. continuing to defend it, I feel like it doesn't cost you anything. No, if you're still in office as a Democrat right now, Obamacare is not a political liability for you. Right. And, and by the way, like everyone always looks at Joe Manchin in West Virginia because he's considered the least liberal Democrat. But West Virginia did the Medicaid expansion and they like right. it and the governor wants to keep it. So, right. you know. No, Joe Manchin does not want to take health care away from coal miners. That is not a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know uh, – like 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 we said, there's this bill they've passed has been passed with a, just a lot of breathtaking falsehoods. Um, people saying things that they know just aren't true. They got it passed by one vote. It goes to the Senate now. Uh, like you said, Zach, it's 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 it always pays to be cautious trying to predict what these fucking monsters up on Capitol Hill will do on a daily basis. But you know, unfortunately, this is where we're at. We're all Unfortunately, waiting for another shoe to drop. Uh, Jeff, do you have any final thoughts on this? Uh, what what the hell's going on? Pretty good. That's a pretty good <laughs> final thought. Pretty, pretty good final thought. Um, Jeff Young, you should follow him on our site. Read his stuff. Read Jonathan Cohn's stuff. Our Hill team did a really terrific job covering this. Uh, Matt Fuller. Especially Matt Fuller, who, I, who predicted this would uh, get passed by a Bear one vote, and he was right. His whip counts are things of Da Vincian beauty. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Jeff, thank, thanks to you. Thanks to everyone connected with the, our, our healthcare reporting team. Uh, and uh, we'll be right back to talk about something else. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. And we're back to discuss the extent to which Donald Trump, President Donald Trump and his friends 
are populist as fuck, man. <laughs> totally. This is undeniable. Mm. It's undeniable. No one denies this. No one denies this. Joining us oh. to not deny it, I guess, is uh, Zach Carter. He's back. Yeah. And living in denial. Living in de- was living <laughs> in a tent. Now he's living in denial. And uh, we're really have, happy to have back on the show. She's waving, even though she knows this is an audio only thing. I, I never know with you guys. From we have Alexis Goldstein <laughs> from Americans for Financial Reform. Did I get that nice right? Nice to be here. You did. Okay, you did. You did. Original bank dork Alexis Goldstein. Yes, she's an OG bank dork. Hi. Um, so let's let's start off today. We're talking about the new SEC chairman. Mm, yeah, um, oh freshly confirmed, uh, Jay Clayton, who uh, I think that we'll just say his claim to fame is that, and this is this is something that I think is going to play great in Middle America. He was Goldman Sachs bailout lawyer. Yep, and yep. this that's what people wanted. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's inter- I mean, you alluded to this at the top here, but you know, Donald Trump. Ran- I didn't allude to it. I, I said it. Yeah, uh, he, Donald Trump ran for president, sort of talking out of both sides of his mouth yeah. about about economic policy. On the one hand, he was like, "I'm going to break up the banks; they're bad." Glass Steagall, yeah. And on the other hand, he was like, "Dodd Frank is bad. I'm going to get rid of it." He would call bankers killers one week, and then the next week he'd be like, "I'm going to cut their taxes to nothing." Uh, and so far, since he's come into the White House, uh, every proposal that he's actually put on the table has been something that will either make rich people richer or bankers richer or both. A lot of bankers are rich. He literally and he's appointed people to his to his administration, including Jay Clayton, who are just you know, who have spent their careers making rich people richer at big banks. He literally stood in a room with Jamie Dimon and told Jamie Dimon that he'd be taking cues from him on how to deal with Dodd Frank. That's a thing that really happened. Yep. Just want to point that out. Alexis well, I think even more recently he said that the bankers would be very happy uh, with some of his policy changes, I would say I would say so. So yeah. far, Steve yeah. Mnuchin, another Goldman Sachs alum who is the Treasury Secretary, uh, told a conference room full of bankers that they should thank him for their bank stocks going up, which is great. Great news to see those bank stocks go up. Everyone likes that. Alexis, put this in context for us. What what's what would you anticipate someone like Jay Clayton would do at the SEC? The SEC is supposed to be among the top financial sector watchdogs. In the country, and we've we've seen we've seen obviously uh, th- this kind of person appointed to the SEC before. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly hold out either of President Obama's SEC picks as you know the real sort of I guess moral compass you want at the SEC. But Clayton is he cut from a different cloth, same cloth? What are we? What what would you expect him to do? I mean, I expect him to advance the interests of Wall Street in wow, Washington, unfortunately. I, I feel mean, dumb even asking the question. He now. comes from Goldman's favorite lawyer, Sullivan and Cromwell, which is sort of known for letting its lawyers sort of sit with the Goldman Sachs folks to make sure they really, really understand what their client wants. Um, he also is someone who has no record of public service. So I think, and the other thing that's really interesting about this that was also a problem with the prior SEC commissioner, Mary Jo White, is because he has so many past clients who are likely going to come before the SEC again, he's often going to have to recuse himself. And so there's a lot of things that are just going to be frozen to a standstill. So if Wall Street misbehaves, if Goldman Sachs misbehaves, chances are he's not going to be able to make any decisions or take any votes on any enforcement action 
actions against them because of a conflict of interest, uh, which means that if unless they appoint a bunch more SEC commissioners who are Republicans who want to enforce the law against Goldman Sachs, which I don't really envision happening, but I suppose you never know, um, a lot of stuff is just not going to be able to get done. And that was a problem with Mary Jo White, but I think it's going to be perhaps even more of a problem with Jay Clayton. Yeah, and, New- and Mary Jo White was the previous SEC commissioner. Yeah, the New York Times ran a story a couple of years ago about enforcement actions. We're not talking about writing new rules, but just when when a company does something that's blatantly illegal, uh, that the SEC chair having to not be able to participate in the vote on on that enforcement action because you know she or her husband had had done prior business uh, legal work for that for that particular you know bad actor allegedly bad actor we should say uh, you know Jay Clayton's been working on Wall Street for for decades I mean his whole career and so half of his literally half of his tenure this is going to be something that's hanging over his head. Um, you wanted to talk about uh, what Jeb Hensarling is. Uh, leading the charge he's leading right now in the House. Yeah. So we've been focused a lot on health care and on tax policy. I think for good reason. There's a lot of stuff happening that's really significant, could impact people's lives. Um, but the, the financial sector is getting a lot of, of stuff done right now in the House. Uh, and I, I think this bill has just as the prospects for this bill are just as strong as the prospects for the um, for the for the health care act. I mean, I don't think either of them ultimately will pass. Uh, but this is this is a pretty big deal. Essentially, Jeb Henselink's got a bill that rolls back just about everything that happened uh, in the, the, the 2010 Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act. Uh, it's a really big sweeping piece of legislation. Banks have been asking for it for like, you know, basically since Dodd-Frank passed. Uh, and Republicans just pretty much on a party line basis uh, support it. Yeah, this bill is called the Choice Act, but um, those of us in the advocacy community have been calling it either Wall Street's Choice Act or the Wrong Choice (laughs) Act. Um, One of the things that it does is – so there was this bureau we've talked about on the show before called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was created as a part of Dodd-Frank. It's Elizabeth Warren's brainchild. So right now they can go after banks if they steal your money and try to get your money back. Which is a good thing, you would think. You would think people would want their... I would think this is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, so this bill basically eviscerates the Bureau's ability to enforce the law if the banks steal your money. Um, to get technical about it, right now they can prosecute folks if they do what's called unfair, abusive, or deceptive practices. So like charge you a fee they didn't tell you about or reorder your payments in a sneaky way. This bill basically takes away their ability to enforce the law. So it basically takes away their ability to get your money back when the banks steal it. So that's what the Republicans are voting on. It does a lot more than that. It takes away something called the Volcker Rule, which is a ban on big Wall Street banks basically gambling the way that hedge funds do. It's also a ban on them owning hedge funds. So this really opens the door to go back to the kind of casino-style Wild West that we had before the crisis. And it even does some things that predate Dodd-Frank and undoes that too. So it's basically just let's open the door to a complete Wild West um, and let's let the banks get away with whatever they want. It's really bad. And as Zach said, I think it's probably going to be a party line vote. It's right now in committee, but they're pushing for a House floor vote later in May. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I see right now a real drive also to sort of push uh, retirement plans, retirement savings, and the kind of money people are saving to live out their golden years back into that casino area too. They undid the fiduciary rule. Uh, or they passed an executive order that would undo the fiduciary. They've, they've they tried, yeah. 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 They've, they've they they have designs on that, and and this week they also, uh, uh, as Dave Jameson reported, they undid um, uh, Obama rule that actually seemed pretty popular with most 
Republicans when it was happening to allow uh, low-income earners better access to retirement funds. Right. Um, and the way the way our uh, HuffPost reporter Dave Jamison put it was that there's really no pro side to doing that if you're not someone on Wall Street. Yeah, the only people that really benefits is if you are a Wall Street bank who wants to sell people your own retirement plan instead of letting a state have, you know, a nice state-sponsored retirement plan. It's really just about taking American money and putting it in the pockets of the banks. That's really the only incentive to vote for that. It was a very close vote in the Senate, but the Republicans did prevail. I think it was like one vote margin. Yeah, it was, I it was really close. But I mean, but it's fifty in, to forty nine. But it's in keeping with this sort of broad theme that we've seen since Trump took office of transferring wealth and power away from the public sector towards the financial sector. And you know, I I think it's when you look at what Trump says, like every time they do one of these things, Trump or or Gary Cohn or one of his top advisors comes out and says, oh, by the way, we're still really serious about reinstating Glass-Steagall. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. And, and Glass-Steagall is a separation between, you know, sort of risky securities trading and traditional banking, taking deposits, making loans, stuff that's less risky. FDIC insured stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think what Alexis was saying about the Volcker rule in the in the Choice Act really gives the game away, mm-hmm. because if if Republicans really had any interest in reinstating Glass-Steagall, there would be no need to to get rid of the Volcker rule. The we Volcker haven't gone rule, as far as saying the Republicans have an interest in it. It's just curious that Trump and and at times members of it, of his of his of his cabinet have right. talked about bringing it back. Yeah, well, look, even if Trump were serious about it, he'd have to get it through Congress. And True. right now, they're getting rid of of sort of a weaker version of, or they're trying to get, they're voting to to get rid of a weaker version of Glass Steagall in the Volcker rule. Well, and this seems to be just like a common theme, right? It's just like let's pull every rug out from under Americans as we can. Let's take away health care from people, so you have to rely on GoFundMe or something or begging <laughs> your to Patreon pay for your you know pr- pregnancy or C sections as a pre existing condition. Another thing the Choice Act does is part of Dodd Frank established this sort of emergency room for banks. So it had all this preventative medicine to try to make sure that banks didn't uh, go under again. But it also created essentially an ER room called the Orderly Liquidation Authority. They want to get rid of that, replace it with nothing. Uh, So it's just, we're basically, if there's another crisis in healthcare, if there's another crisis in banking, like the Republicans just don't want to have any alternative. I guess they just want everything to be lit on fire and we'll all dance around it. I don't know. Is there... Should we be thinking now, right now, about the next big financial crisis? I mean, it seems to me that the the one of the drivers of the last financial crisis were banks that were way over leveraged, um, and uh, a lot of people taking actions that allowed them to pretend there wasn't any kind of risk in the game. Um, are we back to that kind of point now? I mean, I'm starting to see, you know, those kind of canaries and coal mines, those overpriced housing properties that shouldn't be valued the way they are. Uh, we're, everyone's talking about uh, home prices coming back up. Uh, student it, loans it, it, and student it, loan debt. Yeah, and and, and you know, th- I don't think student loan debt had that big a had a had a big concert effect with the last financial crisis, but that's something new. I mean, are we are we have we reached, you know, are we nearing an event horizon for something like 2008? I mean, look, Jamie, I spend a lot of time worrying about this because that is my job. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, famously said uh, during at the outset of the Obama administration that, um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when we have financial crises because they happen every seven years or so. OK, it's, it's been like nine years since our last crisis. So, I mean, I, I haven't been monitoring the markets that closely. I don't know what the, the trigger point could be, but sure, we could be we could have a crisis in the next few years. But I think the. The thing that really worries me is is just 
the economy not actually working right in a lot of ways that we sort of just take for granted, right? Like when, when Alexis just mentioned student loan debt, I mean, there's a trillion dollars that is just sitting on people's backs out there in student loan debt. And that student loan debt means people can't like buy a house. It means they can't, they can't buy a car. It means a lot of things that ordinary, that are part of like ordinary middle class life are just not accessible to people. And, and, you know, that's not, that's not as sexy as like the stock market dropping like 800 points in a day, but that's, that's a drag on people's incomes. It contributes to inequality. It makes life harder for people. I am worried at how much the stock market has been booming recently, and I yeah. do think we're due for a correction. And I'm I'm very worried, and especially given that Congress seems hell bent on undoing all these rules that are meant to sort of put the brakes on any future crises. I, I it's definitely something that keeps me up at night. Yeah. And the stock market, you know, it's almost scarier to me, like if the stock market doesn't correct, right? Because it's gone up for no reason basically since Trump was elected. There's no really good reason for, for stocks to be worth more today than they were in November. The, the economy hasn't undergone gone some dramatic shift. No legislation has actually even passed yet right. to change the structure of markets. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just kind of weird. So if it doesn't correct, then we're in this really scary world where there's one sort of universe for like people who could get to have money in the stock market, which mm-hmm. is like less than a fourth of, of America, and this other economic universe for everybody else. And guess which part of that universe is going to pay if there is a huge crash, right? <laughs> well, it's not the people with the, the stocks. The same one that paid before. <laughs> right. Yeah. We furnished a lot of lobbyists for them by paying for it. Didn't get much thanks either for saving everyone's bacon. It would be nice just one day for someone to get that Thank bacon. you card. Yeah. Yeah, from Jamie Dimon. I fucked up. Thanks, taxpayers, for bailing my dumb ass out. All right. Well, I mean, once again, we've ended on a somewhat <laughs> pessimistic note. Yeah. Okay. Donald Trump's still president, too. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations to everybody. Um, Thank you. Alexis Goldstein. She is from the Americans for Financial Reform. Thanks, guys. Uh, Tell tell the people where they can follow you and all your enterprising. I'm at Alexis Goldstein on Twitter, and uh, AFR's website is ourfinancialsecurity.org. Yep. She's helping you. So please listen to her and do what she says. She wants to help. I do. It's true. Yeah. All right. Uh, We'll be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And welcome back. We're joined by uh, our ride or die, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we're going to welcome back to the show. She's podcasting for two. Amanda <laughs> Turkle. <laughs> Thank you. So, guys, I'm just going to read some names to you. You tell me if any of these names have anything in common. Uh, Monica Crowley, Michael Flynn, Vincent Viola, Andrew Puzder, Katie McFarland, Todd Ricketts. What do they have in common? Failures. These Not are- just failures, but... 
nominees. <laughs> yes, they were going to be in the Trump administration, but now they're not. And we're going to talk about someone today who may be joining up for the same face. And like Vincent Viola, a, a secretary for the Army nominee, uh, Tennessee State Senator Mark Green, uh, who is uh, whose nomination has been taking on water. And, and a lot of it is down to stuff that you've been reporting, Amanda. So talk to us about Tennessee State Senator Mark Green. He's Trump's second now nominee to be secretary of the Army. Right. And Vincent Viola was a Wall Street billionaire. He had financial entanglements. He thought it would be too hard to get out of. But Mark Green is different. He is just – he's a really conservative guy uh, and has said a lot of things, especially controversial, about LGBT people. Uh, he said that being transgender is a disease, that part of his mission as a public official is to crush evil, and that's why he opposes transgender uh bathroom equality bills, and he <laughs> recently sponsored legislation that would sort of uh, sort of tie the hands of st- uh, municipalities that want to provide greater protections for LGBT people. And so that is a lot of what's gotten him in trouble. So did the Trump administration want the army secretary to be a guy who'd said these things and taken these positions? Good question. They haven't said much about him. And you know, the Trump administration is not known for its great vetting. Again, Michael Flynn. Uh, so I don't know how much they knew about him, but it's, I mean, it's out there. I, you know, it's been widely reported that he had this legislation. And there are lots of YouTube clips of him online, which is where I found a lot of his comments. And you can just watch what he says. So with the vetting process, th- this has happened so many times. And each time it's, or m- many of the times, it seems like a simple failure to Google. <laughs> Unless they really want this guy. But I mean, look, you know, the armed services now are fully integrated. Transgender people are allowed to serve openly. And yet you'd have an army secretary who has these views. It's not it's not great for recruiting. It's not great for morale. It doesn't send a good message. Well, well, the Trump administration has – Trump wants to roll back a lot of things that took place under the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're, we're asking – do you want this guy to be the army secretary? Do they want? Is there any indication the Trump administration? I have a theory. Wants to roll back those policies. Those policies are, you know, are tougher to roll back, and it doesn't seem like they're going to do anything like that. Yeah, one of the things about we need to talk about was when don't ask, don't don't tell went by the wayside. One of the things that that paced that change was a massive survey that was undertaken about armed forces members and how they felt about it, and. Uh, it came back that they wanted to see Don't Ask, Don't Tell go away as much as anyone who ever advocated it for. They wanted uh, LGBT soldiers in the service. Um, and it, one of the things – we talk about a survey, obviously. Surveys – people take surveys and polls all the time. This particular one had such a massive sample size and such a small margin of error that it even was enough to convince people like John McCain to, 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 to sort of come along with this. Because the reality is these you know, LGBT people were serving in the military anyway. Right. Uh, and people knew – the sexual orientation of many of their member, uh, you know, of many of their fellow service members, uh, you know, obviously there were risks to coming out. It wasn't, you know, I'm not trying to say that it was easy, but you know, these people have been serving, and so now they could do so openly. And yeah. So what does John McCain have to say about Mark Green? If if this nomination goes forward, the Senate will be, it'll be up to the Senate. 
Yes. And McCain's especially important because he chairs the Armed Services Committee, which is the committee that Green's nomination has to clear. And so he hasn't said that whether he supports or opposes him, but he says that many of Green's comments are, quote, very concerning. And so that is not not a great vote of confidence for Mark Green. I have a kind of theory about how these things come about. Maybe you guys think I'm crazy. But it's always seemed to me that Donald Trump doesn't actually know that many people. <laughs> and it seems to me that like everyone that he maybe knows personally has at one time or another been floated as a significant uh, member of this administration. I think that probably what happens is that someone walks into a room and says, you should choose this guy. And if that's the last person Donald Trump heard from, he picks him. This guy, Mark Green, sounds awfully to me like someone that – Mike Pence put in in his ear. Well, he was Mark Green was a Trump supporter, and he actually, you know, he you have he, to be a Trump supporter to make your way right, into the exactly. Too. You can't have criticized him. And if he can't think of anyone, he just goes with Jared Kushner. But Mark Mark <laughs> Mark Green was an army medic. He special operations. He was part of the team that captured Saddam Hussein, and he interrogated Hussein for. Uh, six hours. So, you know, he does have some military background, but he also is a very far right conservative state lawmaker. Well, he, so that's, he has a really distinguished military career. Uh, what was, and he would, might have some insight into Saddam Hussein. What was it <laughs> he said about Saddam Hussein? Yes. That, that drew attention. In, in 2015, he was at a church and spoke, sort of combining his interests, I guess, of, of religion and Saddam Hussein together. Uh, talked about how you, uh, you know, have to be careful not to go on a downward spiral away from God, which is what happened to Saddam Hussein. And he said, you know, it starts with things like if you look at a Victoria's Secret catalog and you're not supposed to, you are more. Down, you are going down that road to becoming Saddam Hussein. You're not guarding your conscience. Exactly. So did Saddam, so did Saddam Hussein confess to him that it all started when I, he there was this Victoria's Secret? On I believe, table? believe it or not, I googled Saddam Hussein Victoria's Secret. I didn't really find anything. Oh no! <laughs> that would be incredible. Was so I you actually were about did to Google say, that. Yeah. That incredible. That no underwire <laughs> collection really got me thinking about gassing people. <laughs> so the uh, failure to Google or to you know otherwise vet vetting is not actually Google. I mean, you do Google in the course you're vetting, but you also do back background lookup, speak to somebody's past associates. You know, you try. Well, if you're Donald Trump. You're the president of the United States, and you survived every Google search known to humanity. But what he, do you think? I mean, he himself is like, kind of doesn't I, matter. To I'm going to run the government like a business. I'm a smart businessman. I'll get all the best people. He has just profoundly failed to do that. He cannot get people through the United States Senate because he's not even googling them. Like I said, he doesn't know many people, um, and and he he writes off anyone who's ever criticized him, and that's been kind of a that's been actually kind of a a, a thing in the in the foreign policy community and trying to build up uh, at defense and at state is that people who have said bad things about Donald Trump in the past can't get in. Yeah, it's been a big problem. <laughs> so what's this rumor about Mark Green withdrawing the nomination? There are rumors. I don't know how true they are, but it is, it's definitely a rumor out there. Mark Green's person says, you know, there's no truth to this. Uh, he's not going to withdraw, but you know, his nomination still hasn't been sort of formally submitted to the Armed Services Committee. So there's no date for a hearing yet. Uh, and 
you know, not not a, not getting a ton of outspoken support yet. How significant would it be to have an army secretary with you know who's a, against uh, LGBTQ rights? Uh, in the grand scheme of where Trump stands on those issues, like how <laughs> he hasn't been totally awful, has he? I mean, there was he this executive order this week. Right. He hasn't – it hasn't been one of his priorities in going after LGBT rights. He In the agencies, he is sort of rolling back some things that Obama did or just saying that we're not going to focus on them. Uh, but this, you know, this guy would be a pretty big statement. Okay, so the the moderating influence of Ivanka has <laughs> certainly been seen. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, I think I think we're still kind of overrating Ivanka's moderating. Influence. I was joking. I thought that oh. was a joke. Okay, I, got I thought your that joke. was a joke that everyone I got your joke. Got. Sorry, a little close to home. Uh, no problem. <laughs> Sorry, oh, that's a funny joke. Ha, 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 ha. Um, all right. Well, we should perhaps look ahead to perhaps uh, Mark Green joining. This esteemed list I read off the bat of people who were uh, once floated, almost confirmed, and then it faded back into not being in the Trump administration. Uh, Amanda, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Arthur, it was great. Thanks for having me. You were really hilarious today. <laughs> I'm blushing. Yeah, you are. Stop. You are. So funny. So funny. All right. We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. Special thanks to Nick for assisting us in the New York City studio this week. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform, as well as HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Amanda Turkle, and Jeff Young. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts on the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.